The Matheson Pensions Podcast. Presented by Deirdre Cummins, partner in the Employment, Pensions and Benefits Group at Matheson. This podcast series examines the topical legal issues affecting the operation and management of occupational pension schemes in Ireland and is relevant to pension scheme trustees, employers, pension practitioners and industry professionals. Hello and welcome. Today, myself and my colleague Jane are going to take a look at the payment of death in service benefits. That is the payment of benefits from a pension scheme when a member dies in employment. This can be one of the more difficult areas for trustees and particularly in the context of defined contribution schemes, it is probably one of the most difficult considerations that can arise. In my experience, it is easy enough for trustees to get things wrong in this space and it's a common area for disputes, which incidentally we have seen increasing in recent years. Trustees are often provided with an absolute discretion in trust documents when making a decision about the distribution of benefits of this nature. And sometimes this discretion can be misunderstood as meaning that the decision of the trustees cannot be disputed. In fact, all decisions in relation to the payment of death and service benefits must be given proper consideration by trustees. As a point of clarification at the outset, I just want to say as these benefits are payable under trust, they are separate and distinct from a person's will and estate. And while the benefits can ultimately be paid into a person's estate, The provisions of a will or the fact that a person dies in testate, that is without a will, is not determinative of how benefits should be paid. And that's a very common mistake that I wanted to clear up at the outset. So Jane, where should trustees start? Well, Deirdre, Edge v Pensions Ombudsman, which was a UK decision of the Court of Appeal, remains the leading case in relation to the exercise of trustee discretions. That's the case from 1999. And it didn't actually involve anything to do with death and service benefits. In that case, the trustees were making a decision around taking surplus out of the scheme and they decided to credit active members with additional pensionable service and also to reduce the employer and member contributions. So again, that only benefited active members. Pensioner members were annoyed. They complained to the pensions ombudsman and it was appealed upwards as far as the Court of Appeal. So that case examined the use of trustees' discretions. And what the Court of Appeal found when looking at the exercise of a trustee's discretionary power was that the discretionary power has to be exercised for the purpose for which it was given in the first place. Trustees need to give proper consideration to the matters which are relevant and exclude any matters which are irrelevant when they're making their decision. And that overall, a preference for one set of beneficiaries, if everything has been properly considered, can actually be a proper exercise of the trustee's discretion. Now, that will sound somewhat familiar, and that's because the case was quoted with approval in Element 6, which is the leading Irish case on trustee decision making. So once trustees understand their duties, I think it's fair to say they can move on to more practical matters. So in larger schemes where this is something that trustees might have caused to give consideration to more frequently, it might be well worthwhile putting in place a process document that would deal with the trustees' duties and obligations in the context of a death in service. So this type of document would usually outline the benefits that are payable on a death in service. It would explore the definitions and who those benefits might be payable to, and then would also include learned experience that the trustees would build up as they're dealing with death in service benefits. I would also say, and perhaps again, this is more so the case for larger schemes, 
that for some trustee boards, it might make sense to delegate the decision making to a committee of two, maybe three trustees. That can make sense because sometimes these decisions can be quite time consuming and difficult to come to a conclusion on. And so it avoids involving the entire trustee board. In the case that trustees do decide that they do want to go ahead and delegate their decision making to a subcommittee, they should minute the decision that they've taken to delegate. They might want to also record the types of decisions that are suitable for the subcommittee to make. And in some cases, they may wish to decide that some decisions should be referred back to the board. For example, if the subcommittee feel that it's appropriate to put in place a trust for a minor and they want to put some conditions around that trust, that's something that the whole board might want to consider rather than just a subcommittee. Okay, so clearly there are some important points for trustees to think about generally in relation to this subject. In terms of first steps then, Jane, when a member actually dies in service, I expect it would make sense to start with establishing what benefits are payable under the terms of the trust. Is that the right place to start? Exactly, Deirdre. I think that's the obvious place to start. And then, of course, trustees do also need to determine who those benefits might be paid to. On first glance, determining the benefits that might be paid can seem quite straightforward. Often schemes will provide for a multiple of salary in terms of a lump sum. Then some schemes, particularly defined benefit schemes, can also provide for spouses and children's pensions. Where things really start to get tricky or difficult is that it's typical for schemes to allow wide discretions in terms of who those benefits can be paid to. I agree. And I think in figuring out to whom the various benefits may be paid, the terms of the trust deed and in particular the defined terms in the trust deed need to be very carefully examined. For example, it is common in death and service rules to provide that lump sum benefits, Jane, just as you were speaking about there, can be paid to any member of the named class. Now, named class is a defined term. And when you actually look at the definition or examine it closely, named class is a very wide group of individuals and can include the member's children, the spouse, potentially a civil partner or financial dependent. But it can also include grandparents, potentially nieces and nephews and other possible beneficiaries. So that's the first thing to be aware of. Talking about definitions, I think a few other definitions also require attention when you're looking at death in service. For example, a civil partner in law at the moment is a same sex partner that's sometimes confused. A spouse, that definition can cause a lot of difficulty when you're looking at the benefits to be paid. So to be a spouse, you have to be married or at least to have been married at some point in the past. This whole idea of common law spouse is rather meaningless, I think, in the context of death in service benefits, because unless the term is actually defined in the trust documentation itself, it doesn't give you any automatic entitlements to benefits under a pension scheme. Also in relation to the definition of spouse, where people are living together, in most circumstances, the fact of living together won't in and of itself give the non-member spouse an automatic entitlement to benefits. Of course, it might mean that you are financially dependent on the member, and that's something I'll circle back to in a moment, but it doesn't actually qualify you as a spouse nine times out of ten for the purposes of a definition. I've also seen cases where the trust document allows trustees to pay a spouse's pension to someone other than the spouse or potentially to reduce the amount payable and in some circumstances not to pay it at all, where, for example, there is a large age difference between the member and their spouse or where the member and their spouse are separate and living apart. Another definition or another concept that you need to be very careful of in this context is the definition of dependency or financial dependence. 
It is not uncommon for schemes to only pay a death in service benefit where financial dependency can be established. But establishing it is not always without difficulty for trustees in my experience. So, for example, just to give you a flavour of the type of things we're seeing here, the definition can involve a degree of subjectivity. So it could provide where a member is financially dependent on the deceased in the opinion of the trustees. And, you know, the question then arises as to how do the trustees form an opinion as to the dependence of the potential beneficiary? There are also instances where a rule, for example, might require a high degree of dependency. So it provides for something like where they are dependent on the member for the ordinary necessaries of life. And that's actually the phrase that's usually used, which is more helpful than a vague rule, which doesn't specify the degree of dependency required. I'd also just say on on this point before I finish up that trustees also need to be very careful about making assumptions about financial dependence. So, for example, just because the parties are divorced doesn't automatically mean that they are financially independent of each other. Or equally, because the parties are living together, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are financially dependent. So, Jane, leaving definitions aside, what other steps can trustees take to keep themselves out of trouble in this area, if you like? Well, Deirdre, there are a number of steps that can and should be taken in every instance of a death in service. And these are the sort of steps that I would suggest should be included in a death in service process document and fleshed out in that document. So as we've just gone through, the first step would be to check the scheme rules and definitions carefully and establish the benefits that are actually payable where a member dies in service. Then trustees need to move on to establishing the pool of potential beneficiaries. They need to make appropriate inquiries and not to over-egg it. They need to go ahead and make further inquiries where that's required. They should take advice where necessary. And there are some cases where I think it's absolutely incumbent on trustees to take some advice before coming to a decision if they want to keep themselves out of trouble. And then I think it's also important to state that they should keep a record of the factors that they've considered before they reach their decision. And to go into those, Jane, then in a bit more detail, when you say establish the pool of potential beneficiaries, are you saying that trustees have to figure out every single person who might be entitled to a benefit? Wouldn't that potentially involve hundreds of people? Absolutely, especially when you're looking at something like that definition of named class that you mentioned, it can include very wide ranging relatives of the member. So it's not always necessary to establish every single person who's entitled to benefit. But where trustees can fall down is that there can be a tendency to just assume that the immediate family constitutes everyone who might be entitled to benefit. That's not really good enough, particularly now that families are getting a bit more complicated. I think that trustees do need to keep in mind that there could, for example, be children from a former relationship that retain a level of dependency on the member. There could be a former partner involved, again, who might be in some level dependent on the member or other relationships, including parents, for example, that should be considered. And Jane, what happens if somebody is missed? Well, Deirdre, where trustees fail to make the proper efforts to identify the full pool of potential beneficiaries, they run the risk that someone will later come forward and be able to establish that they should have been considered. The difficulty there is that where someone can establish that they are essentially a factor that should have been considered when the decision was made, the decision then is open to being overturned. And the problem with that then is that it brings us back to the question of inquiries and the inquiries that the trustee should be making here. So I think that's a very difficult area for trustees because it can be very difficult for them to establish how far they have to go in terms of the inquiries they should be making. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely a fair comment and it is an area where trustees are often criticised. And I agree also that it's an area that is a difficult one for trustees to get right. The essential point is that trustees need to be as fully informed as possible before they reach their decision. And I do think that there can be a temptation to jump to a decision after making little or no inquiries. For example, trustees might think that it's sufficient to just look at the expression of wishes form and follow the wishes of the member as set out therein and leave it at that. That's not sufficient. If that's not sufficient, Jane, what is sufficient for a trustee to do? Well, really, that very much depends on the individual case. Some cases will be very straightforward and trustees can fairly easily establish through talking to friends and family and maybe HR, as well as looking at the expression of wishes form and the member's will, that it is appropriate to go ahead and pay the benefits to the member's spouse and or their children. Other cases might be much more complicated and could include, for example, former partners, children from whom the member has become estranged, elderly parents for whom the member was making provision and various other relationships that the trustees might not be immediately aware of. In complicated cases, trustees might need to expend quite a lot of effort in making inquiries before it's actually reasonable for them to make a decision. And what about situations then where conflicting information is received by trustees? Again, that can be a tricky area. And what I would say is that trustees should not just accept a single person's version of events without making wider inquiries. And they should give other potential beneficiaries the opportunity to demonstrate why they should be considered in the decision making process. In some cases, I think trustees probably need to think outside the box. They could, for example, talk to the executor of the estate or in one case we were involved in recently, the trustees spoke to the funeral director as they were trying to establish who paid for the funeral and therefore might have had a relationship with the member that they needed to know about. Now, where two individuals are providing information that really conflicts, trustees might want to ask for written statements from both of them Or if there's a real doubt about the veracity of one or both individual's statements, they might want to ask for those statements to be sworn. Wow, that is interesting. And you mentioned there as well an expression of wishes forms. And I wanted to circle back to that because in my experience, while they are important and do give an indication of the member's wishes, they are not binding forms and so should not be treated as such. Exactly. And the question that trustees really need to be asking themselves is not whether there's any reason that we should depart from the expression of wishes form. What they should actually be doing is establishing the pool of beneficiaries in the normal way and then treating the expression of wishes form as a factor to be considered in determining who amongst the pool of beneficiaries should receive the benefit. Now clearly these forms are useful but there are cases where it's important for trustees to establish whether there has been a change in circumstances, which might mean that the form should be disregarded entirely or is really no longer indicative of the member's wishes. The first step there would be to check the date on the expression of wishes form. And then trustees might need to make inquiries as to whether there has been any significant change in circumstance, such as a marriage or birth of children or a divorce, that might mean that the expression of wishes form should be disregarded. Now, that said, a change in circumstances does not necessarily mean that the expression of wishes form should be disregarded. For example, a member who has named their parents in the expression of wishes form and has since married may have considered that their spouse was sufficiently provided for under the terms of the will. And so their intention that their parents would receive a benefit under the scheme hasn't actually changed. Now, all of that might sound like it's really difficult, if not impossible, for trustees to make the right decision when they're making a decision around death and service benefits. 
But what I would say there is that trustees are not required to make a right decision. What they are required to do is to consider all the relevant factors and demonstrate that they have done so before they make a decision. Once they have actually gone through the process correctly, the weight to attach to any particular factor is a matter for the trustees. And element six really confirmed that neither the courts or a pensions ombudsman or now the financial services and pensions ombudsman will substitute their decision for a properly executed use of a discretionary power under pension scheme rules. And it's just important to say on that point, trustees should record their decisions as well and the factors considered when making those decisions. Absolutely, because if it does come to pass that a decision of the trustees ends up in front of the ombudsman, which is probably more likely than the courts, what the ombudsman is interested in is examining the decision making process and checking that all of the relevant factors were considered. Where that has been done, the trustees should be safe. So clearly, Jane, this is an area with any number of pitfalls for trustees and is not always the easiest to navigate for them. And therefore, we would advise trustees to proceed with caution and to seek advice as required. Join us next time for more pensions news and insights. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Pensions Podcast. For more information, go to matheson.com forward slash pensions. 